ready for First Chronicles 27, and I'm glad, uh, I'm glad this many are back. I think that's exciting. It's really uh, inspiring that you have the attitude that you have. We have looked at um, the temple leadership that David organized in chapters 23 to 26. Now we're looking at the civil leadership, uh, particularly in verses 1 to 24, the military leadership. Um, notice in verse 1, now this is the enumeration of the sons of Israel, the heads of the fathers' households, the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, hundreds, and their officers who served the king in all the affairs of the divisions which came in and went out month by month throughout all the months of the year, each division numbering 24,000. And so you see the divisions of the commanders uh, of, of the army. You see that in 1 through uh, 15. Um, notice uh, particularly verse 7. Do you see anything a little different uh, about verse 7 compared to the other ones as you glance down through there? You have to kind of look at a few of the others. And then you look at verse 7, and there is a difference and how what's said in verse 7 compared to most of the rest of them. Do you notice a difference? What is it? His son is named as being in charge of the army division after him. Now my question is, why? The others don't name their son as being in charge of the army division after them. Why in verse 7? Exactly. Remember that story about Asahel's untimely death. He was killed by Abner uh, because... He ran so fast, he was chasing Abner. He ran like a gazelle. And Abner did what to kill him? Yeah, stopped abruptly. And Asahel was running so fast, he was able to push the butt end of the spear, the sword or whatever, through uh, Asahel. And that uh, didn't uh, bode well for his health. So... Uh, <laughs> So therefore, he needed his son to be in charge of the uh, division after him. I think that's just a, an interesting detail. So many times in the Bible, you see details that link up, that sort of fit the stories together when you wouldn't necessarily even notice them if you weren't thinking about it. And then you have the leaders of the tribes in 16 through 24. Um, the various officers in charge of each tribe. Now, this is kind of weird. I want you to see if you can figure out what tribes are added and what tribes are missing uh, in this section in 16 to 24. They always end up with 12, but they don't always end up with 12 the same way. <laughs> Which tribes are sort of added here? One of them rather weirdly. Aaron, he wasn't a tribe, and Zebulun was a tribe. 
Well, I, uh, for Issachar, Omri, the son of Michael. So that's talking about Issachar. There's one other that wasn't a... If you count the 12 tribes, there's one other that wasn't in the 12 tribes. Levi. So Levi and Aaron are added. Which two then are missing? Anybody good at re reciting the 12 tribes by memory? Gad and... Very good. Asher. Now why? I don't know. I don't know why Gad and Asher were uh, omitted. Uh, and I'm not exactly sure why Aaron was added. Aaron was a subset of Levi. You know, uh, Aaron was a Levite. He was just the father of the priest, priestly side of the Levites. Um, but it's, it's fascinating how almost every time you're going to end up with 12. It may be a different set of 12, but you're going to end up with 12. Uh, there's much emphasis on the 12-ness of uh, the people of God. Um, and uh, notice also verse 23, but David did not count those 20 years of age and under because the Lord had said he would multiply Israel as the stars of heaven. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, had begun to count them but did not finish, and because of this, wrath came upon Israel, and the number was not included in the account of the chronicles of King David. You remember that story. We studied that uh, just a few chapters ago, uh, back in chapter, uh, which chapter was that, 21? Yeah. Think so. All right. Uh, anything through one to twenty-four. All right, twenty-five to thirty-four are other um, uh, leaders of government and uh, of the society. For example, in verse twenty-five, what what are these guys in charge of? The storehouses. They're kind of the treasurers of the country. And then in 26 to 28, what are these guys in charge of? Food. Food, the agricultural products, that's right. And then in 29 to 31, what are these guys in charge of? Yeah, livestock. And then in 32 to 34, what do you have? The counselors, including a couple of guys you know well in verse 33, Ahithophel and Hushai. And uh, so, that's uh, chapter 27, and uh, that's almost the last chapter like this we've got in First and Second Chronicles. I don't know if there's any cha other chapters that uh, have as many names per word as what uh, these chapters have had. Any other things you want to say through chapter 27? Joab. Joab. And it was earlier when Joab recommended that David didn't do that. Well, yes, but it doesn't say that it was Joab's idea to count them. Joab was the one who made the count. He made them on the orders from David. You wouldn't know that from this. You know that from earlier in the book. But Joab was the one who was doing the counting. I think so. I think it's the same event. It just, it's, it's sometimes when you have the summaries of the events in one or two verses, it's a very abbreviated summary. You wouldn't really understand the details of what happened if you only knew the summary. You would have to get the, the fuller report to understand how all this fits together. Good observation. Other comments and questions? <coughs> All right, well, uh, chapter 28, would somebody read 1 to 10? And David assembled all the princes of 
subscribe to the captains of the companies that serve the king by course, and the captains of the thousands, and the captains of the hundreds, and all the rulers over the uh, possessions of the king and of his sons, with the officers and the mighty men, even all the mighty men of valor unto Jerusalem. And David the king stood up upon his feet and said, Hear me, my brethren, my people. As for me, it was in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of Jehovah, and for the footstool of our God. And I had made ready for the building. But God said unto me, Thou shalt not build a house for my name, because thou art a man of war, and hast shed blood. However, Jehovah, the God of Israel, chose me out of all the house of my father to be king uh, over Israel forever. For he hath chosen Judah to be prince, and in the house of Judah, the, father, the house of my father. And among the sons of my father, he took pleasure in me to make me king over all Israel, and all my sons, for on all my sons, for Jehovah hath given me many sons. He hath chosen Solomon, my son, to sit upon the throne of the kingdom of Jehovah over Israel. He said to me, Solomon, thy, thy son, he shall build my house, my course. For I have cho chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his kingdom forever. For if he be constant to do my commandments and my ordinances as at this day. Now therefore, in the sight of all Israel, and the assembly of Jehovah, and in the audience of our God, observe and seek out all the commandments of Jehovah your God, and that ye may possess the good, this good land, and leave it for an inheritance to your children after you forever. And now, Solomon, my son, know thou the Lord of thy father, and serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind. For Jehovah searcheth all hearts, and understandeth all the imaginations of the heart. If thou seek him, he will be found, found of thee. But if thou forsake him, he will cast thee off forever. Take heed now, for Jehovah hath chosen thee to build a house of the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. Okay. David is doing what here? Making a speech to all the people, particularly all the leaders of the people, all the officials, all the soldiers, and so forth. And David's saying several things to them. First of all, in 2 and 3, David is saying what? Exactly. He intended to build the temple. God vetoed that idea. Vetoed it because? It's going to be Solomon's task because? Exactly. Second time we've run across that. I remember years ago, I'd always heard that David couldn't build the temple because he shed blood. But studying Samuel and Kings, it never says that. And I can remember thinking, I bet that's just something people made up. They just dreamed up. It was many years after that that I studied Chronicles and realized, no, it's really in there. It just wasn't what I was looking for. It. Sometimes that's the way it is. Sometimes you're thinking, well, I bet that's just made up and you're just looking at the wrong passage. So we do have a couple of times in here where he specifically says it's because David was a man of war and um, he did not want David to build it. He wanted Solomon to build it. And yet still, look at the choices that God made in verses 4 and 5. Who all had God chosen? He chose Judah to be the leader, even though Judah was not the firstborn. Who else did he choose? He chose David 
as the king, even though David was not the firstborn. And who else did he choose? Solomon. Even though Solomon was not the firstborn, God makes many choices that do not seem to line up with the way men would make the choices. Who would have chosen Judah? I mean, he didn't even, as we looked at yesterday, have an exemplary marital record, uh, at any rate, moral record. Uh, Judah wouldn't necessarily have been our choice. Who would have chosen David? I mean, Jesse didn't even bring David before Samuel. You know, he's the little one that's out there with the flocks, you know. You wouldn't want him to be the king. Who would have chosen Solomon? Solomon wasn't even among those first several sons of David that were born in Hebron. He was born in Jerusalem and born to which mother? Bathsheba. Probably not exactly the union you would think would provide the best leader. God chooses according to his desires. These are the choices that, the choices that God uh, had made. And then he, he, he reports what God said. In verses 6 through 8, what did God basically say? Solomon will build the temple and he will establish his kingdom forever provided that he keeps the commandments. Yeah. And therefore, in verses 9 and 10, God, or David addresses himself to Solomon, telling Solomon what? What does is, what is, uh, David tell Solomon in 9 and 10? To know God, to serve God with a whole heart and a willing mind, to be courageous and act. These are the marching orders for Solomon. This is a great passage. Somebody looking for a good uh, talk or sermon, verses 9 and 10 would do well. Because the very charge that God gave to Solomon is exactly what all of us need to do. To know God, to serve Him with a whole heart and a willing mind, to consider and be courageous and act. I think that's just a great statement of David to Solomon. And it's really the choice we all have. It's the choice to serve God or not. You know, look at the end of verse 9. If you seek Him, if you forsake Him, there are your choices. Now notice a connection between the end of verse 8 and the end of verse 9. What's the connection? Forever. If you do right, you'll possess the good land forever. If you forsake Him, He'll reject you forever. So again, you've got that, that choice between Eternal blessing, eternal rejection. It's up to Solomon. Will he uh, seek him or forsake him? Comments and questions on these first ten verses. All right. Um, 11 to 19. Then gave I'm sorry. Then David gave his son Solomon the plan the plan of the porch of the temple, its buildings, its storehouses, its upper rooms, its inner rooms, and the room for the mercy seat, and the plan for all for of all that he, for all that he had in mind, for the courts of the house of the Lord, and for all the surrounding rooms, for the storehouses of the, of the house of God, and for the storehouses of the dedicated things. 
Also for the divisions of the priests and the Levites, for all the work of the service of the house of the Lord, and for all the utensils of the service of the house of the Lord, for all the golden utensils, the weight of gold for all utensils for every kind of service, for the silver utensils, the weight of, the, of silver for all utensils, for every kind of service, and the weight of gold for the golden lampstand and their golden lamp and their golden lamp, and the weight of each lampstand and its lamp, and the weight of silver for the for the silver lampstand, with with the weight of each lampstand and its lamp according to the use of each lampstand, and the gold of weight and, and the gold by weight for the tables of showbread for each table, and silver for the silver table, and the forks basins, and the pitchers of pure gold, and for the golden bowl, and the weight for each bowl, and for the silver bowl, and the weight for each bowl, and for the altar of incense, refined gold by weight, the gold for the mo- for the model of the chariot, even the cherubim, that, set out, that, that spread out their wings, and covered the ark of the, of the covenant of the Lord. And this, said David, the Lord made me to understand in writing by his hand upon me. So what is David giving Solomon here? By the way, there's a few more choice seats up here. If you want to come closer, you're welcome to. But uh, well, what's, what's, God, what's David giving Solomon here? Give the plan, the blueprint. Right? Yeah, the blueprint for what? The temple. David has given Solomon a lot of stuff. I mean, the materials and the workers and the exhortations and encouragement. He's prepared the people, and he's even, give, even giving him the detailed blueprints. Now... Wonder where David came up with these detailed blueprints. Verse 19. And verse 12, I, I thought uh, his set in the mind, in verse 12, mine says, <clears throat> had by the Spirit. Mm-hmm, yes. Which uh, the Lord put this in his mind. Yes, exactly. The, it wasn't David's idea. God gave it to him. In fact, verse 19 says, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me. So, Evidently, the Lord inspired David to write the blueprint and get all the details. That was kind of a tedious read, but it's tedious because the blueprint is for every detail. All the details of not only the house of God itself, the temple, but all the various utensils and and the furnishings and so forth for the temple. Does this remind you of anything? Moses. Where? What book? Exodus 25 to 31, and then following that out in 35 to 40. That's exactly right. Also reminds you of similar statements in 1 Kings with the rebuilding of the temple. Does it remind you of anything else? This will only be for advanced students. But is there, is there another biblical elaborate blueprint for a building? Very elaborate and detailed blueprint. Very similar to these. Anybody studied enough to know where that's at? Probably is. Hey, she 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 gave you a hint. Don't don't give the book away, Sandra. Anybody know? Revelation twenty one. Nah, that's close, but that's not as, in as much detail as what I'm thinking about. There are some parallels, though. Nope. Ezekiel, 40 to 48, probably the, one of the least studied sections of the Bible. And uh, if you read it, you'll know why. But, uh, yeah, you've got the blueprint of the ideal temple of God in Ezekiel 40 to 48. Uh, we could talk a long time about what all that means, but, uh, but that's another parallel section. 
Um, and it just means that when God wants a house, he wants it built the way he wants it built. I mean, he's got his own will for this house, and he, he expresses it uh, very, uh, very carefully in uh, very great detail. Um, all right, comments and questions uh, through verse 19. Twenty and twenty-one. Yeah, go ahead. I was just saying, the word lampstand is used uh, extensively in verse fifteen. Uh, thank you for that observation. <laughs> so it's literary now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, that's about the literary as uh, I'd expect you to note. So, all right, twenty and twenty-one. And David said to his son Solomon, <clears throat> "Be strong and courageous in that. Do not fear, or be dismayed." <coughs> For the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. Now behold, there are the divisions of the priests and the Levites for all the service of the house of God. <coughs> and every willing man of any skill will be with you in all the work of all kinds of service. The officials also and all the people will be entitled at your command. Alright, so what's David telling Solomon? <coughs> be strong and courageous because number one God's with you that's by far the most important thing that gives you confidence and uh, you know a stimulus to work hard and to be strong but what else yeah God will be with you what's the uh, besides the Lord's presence what's the other encouragement he offers yeah there'll be people the priests, the Levites, and skilled men that are entirely at your command that will be willing to work with you and for you in the building of this temple. So most of all, he's got the Lord's presence with him, but also he's got the guarantee that there will be people who will be ready to work on this temple and build it. This is a huge project. Solomon is a young man. Remember how many years it took him to build the temple? Seven years. Can you imagine, um, you know, as a young man, probably the age of some of the older ones of you, uh, you know, and you're being commissioned to build a seven-year building? You know, wow. I mean, it's really rare in our day for a building to take seven years to build, especially if you've got several thousand people working on it. <laughs> you know, this is quite a project. And David is preparing everything and giving Solomon strong encouragement that the Lord will be with him. He can do it. Comments and questions? Well, they were using by hand, you know, the, the stone and everything they had to do was very labor Yes. That is true. Yeah, that's a, that's a factor for sure. Good point. 
Other comments, questions? Okay, chapter 29, verses 1 to 9. I think a very uh, significant section. David is speaking to all these people still. We're still in this assembly that we started in chapter 28. He says, look, guys, Solomon is young, young and inexperienced, and the work is great. He's got a big job to do, but this temple is for who? So we need to do this well. So David starts with what he himself has done. What has David himself done? Yes. And how much stuff has David provided? A lot. David has sacrificed. He has given. David has taken the lead. I think there's an excellent lesson in this chapter. Leaders must take the lead in giving. No leader ought to ask his followers something that he's not willing to do himself. <coughs> David, before he ever calls upon them to contribute sacrificially, has done it himself. You know what a hypocritical thing it is for somebody to call upon somebody else to do something and they're not willing to do it. You know, you take some rich person, very rich, who gives miserly, but is really on everybody else's case, you guys need to give more sacrificially. Now, how do you feel when somebody does that? Kind of stinks, doesn't it? It seems, it seems really false. That's true in other areas besides just monetary giving. You know, somebody who's, who's, you know, chiding you to get you to do something that they themselves are not willing to do, they do not lead well when they do that. But David has taken the lead. And really, he's just done so much. He has um, more or less uh, put his own personal financial security somewhat on the line. 
Um, I, to me, one of the tests of true discipleship is the willingness to risk our material well-being, is the willingness to invest in the work of God. And, and David comes down to ask the question at the end of verse 5, who then is willing to consecrate himself this day to the Lord? You know, who is willing to commit themselves and to give sacrificially themselves? And the word consecrate is a word that you'd use a lot of times for like a, a, a priest or an offering. Who's willing to make a holy sacrifice, David's asking, and give like I have given for the work of God? And what happened when David asked that question? They offered willingly. How much did they offer? A lot. Notice one detail of verse 7. 10,000 derricks of gold. A derrick was a measure from the Persian period. In their era, it wouldn't have been in derricks, but he's translating it into terms that the after-exile generation would have understood. It's kind of like we do. In some of the modern translations of the Bible, some of them don't speak in terms of talents and shekels and all that. They try to put it in modern terms. There's some pros and cons about that, but that's what's being done right here uh, in that. And so they gave a lot. Now, here's what's the most impressive thing to me about all this. When the people follow David's lead and they invest heavily and sacrifice a lot, giving abundantly for the work of God, how do they feel about it? They rejoice. Why do they rejoice? What's going to give you the most joy? Giving. Serving, sacrificing. It is just the opposite of what we are conditioned to believe. What do most people think will give them the most joy? Possessions and self-indulgence. You know, the way I can be happy is to look out for me, to do what seems best for me, to take care of myself. Uh, I was talking with a person not too long ago who uh, said, well, you know, I've just, for too long I've lived thinking about other people. Now it's time for me to take care of myself. <laughs> and uh, that's a recipe for misery. You know, that is not the way to true joy. It doesn't seem like it. In the very short run, if you will give in, to doing just exactly what you feel like doing right then, selfishly for yourself, right at that very moment, you'll get a little mini high off of it. But as soon as you're off of doing it, you'll get a much deeper low. It is so much more joyous to sacrifice, to have self-discipline, to serve and to give, and that's what they found out. This is a great chapter. This is a, a tremendous example for us Money, we are so blessed. There's a lot more sacrificing that ought to be done. And in other areas, it's not just in money. When we sacrifice ourselves in any way to serve and to give ourselves, we will be blessed. I'm going to make one more observation, but what comments and questions do you have? <laughs> 
Trevesa. a very good point. It certainly didn't seem to hurt David's feelings and cause him to just sort of pout. You know, sometimes we aren't able to do the role we wish we could have. Are we willing to jump in and help in whatever role we can to help the work of God grow? Or is it like, well, if I can't do what I want to do, then I'm just going to sit on the sidelines and not do anything. That's a very good point. And uh, I think sometimes, you know, if... if uh, we aren't chosen for the particular leadership role we think we deserve. It's easy to pout and be resentful. Good point. Other thoughts? I just reminded of Haggai who was the prophet who came to the people to get them to give uh, in the rebuilding of the temple. And uh, he really had to twist their arm. And uh, we see in Haggai that uh, the Lord had punished I got one. Other thoughts? If we wanted to make a more specific application, I'm wondering what we should be thinking about. Their giving for the building of the temple. Do you suppose that this is a, um, an encouragement for us to give more so we can get more ornate and elaborate church building? Brad? Why would you say that? How does that fit? Because the church is not comprised of buildings, it's comprised of people, so to get the church growing, more people would be added. Exactly. What is God's temple today? <clears throat> we are. God's temple today is not a physical building. There's no physical building that is God's temple. But His people are His temple. And so giving for the growth of his people, giving to evangelize so that more and more people can be brought to glorify God, would to me be the parallel. Um, there's a number of passages that talk about the church as being God's temple. 1 Corinthians 3, Ephesians 2, 1 Peter 2. But I think also about a passage that's one of my favorites in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 15. For all things are for your sake, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. The more the grace spreads to more and more people, then more people thank God, and that causes God to be glorified more. The reason we teach others, first and foremost, is so that more people can come to glorify God. So that more people form His temple in which He dwells. 
And so I think the parallel would be not we need to give sacrificially so we can put a, uh, you know, some gold plating on the church building or, or whatever, but so that the, the church itself, the temple of God, can be built up. Um, good, good observation. Do you have any other comments or questions through 29.9? Okay, <clears throat> 10 to 19. So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assemblies. David said, Blessed art thou, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and in the earth, thine is the dominion, O Lord. And thou dost exalt thyself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from thee, and thou dost rule over all. And in thy hand is power and 